0: From the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio, this is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yaroshevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra.
1: And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, Manager of Education and Community Engagement.
0: We are so glad you could join us.
1: This podcast navigates issues that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences and as we discuss these often avoided topics.
0: We are thrilled to be joined today by pianist extraordinaire Michelle Kahn. She has performed as a soloist with many of this country's finest orchestras, including the Philadelphia and Cleveland orchestras and the Cincinnati, New Jersey, Atlanta, St. Louis, and Detroit symphonies, among many others. We are beyond fortunate that she has managed to fit the Canton Symphony Orchestra into her busy schedule this year, joining us for our Masterworks concert on October 30th. A champion of the composer Florence Price, she gave both the New York and Philadelphia premieres of Price's Piano Concerto in One Movement, and also recorded the work in a remarkable COVID-19 era recording session with the New York Youth Symphony. She earned her bachelor's and master's degrees right up the road from us at the Cleveland Institute of Music, then went on to pursue an artist's diploma at Curtis where she is now a member of the faculty. Michelle Can. it is truly an honor to talk to you today. Welcome to Orchestrating Change.
2: Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
1: <laughs> We're so happy to have you with us and so excited that you're going to be here with us in Canton. Um, so uh, can you just introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about how you grew up and music and how it was a part of your life and all that good stuff.
2: Absolutely. Um, so I grew up in Florida. Um, right in the center of the state in Avon Park, Florida, Um, and for those that haven't heard of the small town there, it's uh, south of Orlando by a little bit, and um, I grew up in a very, very musical family. Um, My father is a band, well, he's a music director at a private school that covers kindergarten through 12th grade. And he has many, many ensembles um, under that title. So he has choirs and bands and even steel drum band, which is a unique offering, um, you know, uh, sort of around the country in different schools. Piano is one part of my life. And then on the other side of this, like steel drums, where I would play Caribbean music and Latin music and all sorts of various styles. So at any rate, um, my upbringing was one in which piano was definitely uh, the primary focus. My parents wanted us, uh, all my uh, three other sisters, to play instruments, and um, but piano was the first one they they started us all on, and honestly, I think that just, I was the most motivated at that instrument, even though I did play trombone, violin tuba at one point, steel <laughs> drums, and of course staying in the choir. So again, we were part of all of my dance ensembles, but, you know, um, I was extremely motivated at the piano. Um, not to mention my older sister, who six years my senior, was already quite a good pianist when I started at the age of six. And so I was also just trying to be like my big sister. We all <laughs> know about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, much to her annoyance in certain ways, but... Um That was a good thing in you know, definitely a good kind of thing to copy. So she was a good influence. and uh, both of us ended up pursuing careers in in music and in piano, so wow. yeah. Wow!
0: Amazing! <laughs> That's fun. Wow! So you started playing professionally at a very young age. You started performing concertos at a very young like age.
1: Fourteen. I well, forget exactly how old you were, but yeah.
0: What is it like <laughs> at someone so young? What is it like to walk out on stage with a professional <laughs> orchestra?
2: Yes, you are correct. I was fourteen uh, the first time I had a chance to play with a, with an orchestra, and it, and it was the Mendelssohn Piano Concerto, and it is an interesting. Um, concerto in terms of form because it runs as one continuous piece. Mm. Um, Each movement is meant to be played without stopping, um, which also is unique with my residency in Canton because uh, with the burlesque that also doesn't fit into a typical form of a piano concerto, three movement style, um, or the Florence Price. (laughs) And so Anyway, I'll I'll never forget this first um, experience, because I have a funny story attached to it. We were at a festival in Tennessee, so it was with this orchestra um, at the Southern Adventist University in Tennessee, and there is a big music festival that would happen, um, I think it was once a year. My dad had brought, you know, the band members up and such and orchestra members and so a lot of my friends were there and part of this was going to be my performance with the orchestra and so that day much earlier in that day we had all gone to the mall and as you know the whole group was dropped off at the mall and my father told everyone where to meet and at what time now being the typical 14 year old daughter i didn't listen to anything that he said I, I think about the only thing i sort of caught was the time but i paid no attention to where but i assumed of course that you know the group of friends that i left the van with paid att- at least one of us must have <laughs> paid attention. Nope, (laughs) all of us had no idea what he said. And of course, at this point in time, no, we did not have the iPhones we have now where you just text and find the answer. So I remember that we just obliviously and happily went about our way shopping in the mall having fun with the other teenage girls. And then we remembered the time and we were where were we supposed to meet? And nobody knew. And I thought, okay, now we're in trouble. So we tried various things. We figured let's just walk around, we'll find them. We went out to the parking lot a couple of different times hoping to see, we couldn't even remember where the van had parked. So ultimately <laughs> it must've been about a two hour delay. And I'm not kidding you, like the concert was that night. And I think I was almost in the brink of tears. Mostly because I knew how mad my parents must be and worried. And so then finally, I think we made our way out to the parking lot again, and then we were spotted. And you know they got us, and because everybody was waiting for our group. And so We had to rush to the hotel to get me dressed for the concert. Now the concert was in like an hour or something ridiculous. And they're rushing me there, trying to get me ready. We get to the concert, and I was completely, I was so frazzled. Um, Now, the concert ultimately went quite well, all things considered, (laughs) thankfully, but very few people know that, you know, as exciting as it is in my resume to say, oh, my first orchestral appearance at 14, that almost didn't happen because I got lost in a mall. Oh my gosh because I'm a teenager that doesn't
0: listen. Anyway, that Michelle, I have to tell you, that is one of the funniest oh life stories anybody has ever told on the podcast. So I'm laughing so hard, I'm almost crying right. over here.
2: Oh my gosh.
1: That's so, well, you, you, playing as this young person with young people problems of not listening to our parents, but then having to go on stage <laughs> and be professional. I mean, it's just so, it's just so, uh, it's just such a great reminder. I think people forget that people who play on stage professionally are just people and have lives and do things. And like, it's just normal. And so it's so interesting that you went from that as a 14 year playing to then going on pursuing it, um, at a, a, a like learning level as a, you know, a college student. So you went to the Cleveland Institute of music and then eventually to Curtis. So how did you transition yourself from a young performer into a rigorous student at these very prestigious Um, Institutes of Music and Learning and Conservatory. So how was that transition for you?
2: Well, I mean, I have to say, if anything, the first thing that comes to mind was the encouragement in being amongst peers who were focusing at the level that I was trying to focus and study at that, you know, that came to pursue music in a professional career. And one thing about the town I grew up in and trust me, looking at my life now, I kind of really appreciate the balance. I really do. But I grew up in a small town where I was the best in my age group. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, at least, you know, at the piano or whatever. And there were some, you know, a handful of other serious um, students studying piano or studying other instruments. But generally, I was the one that was kind of doing the most, as, my, as some may say, um, in my in my younger studies. Um, so much so that in that town, there really weren't any teachers that could um, meet us at the level that my sister and I were rising to. So for instance, um, we would travel to Lakeland, Florida, which was about an hour away for piano lessons every week. Eventually uh, with a different teacher, I was traveling two hours Mm. to Tampa, Florida. So, Uh, not to mention the violin that I played, I used to play in the Florida Symphony Youth Orchestra in in Orlando, which was an hour and a half from my house on Sundays. So it really it even got to the point where towards uh, part of my high school, I was homeschooled, because it just became too much to figure out how to manage a school schedule, practice and driving to these lessons. So you know, I had this childhood where um, I was doing a lot of competitions, I was driving for lessons, I was, you know, trying to practice as much as I could. But my friends and peers although I had some really great friends that totally understood what I was doing, but at the same time, I was, again, that teenager, I just wanted to fit in. I think that there's just, that's almost always there, right? And so when you don't have other, your peers working in the same way that you are, to the same extent of, you know, disciplined, you know, a lot of people don't get that. Like with piano, you have to spend hours alone at the piano every day right? Mm -hmm. Not to mention, you know, homework that all kids do, but, you know, just this idea, why do you need to practice this much? You're already good, you know? So this is what's around me. And so sometimes, yeah, thank goodness my parents kept pushing. I really think that it was tricky sometimes at home because I definitely had that streak where I loved piano, but I didn't always love to practice. Oh, yeah, oh yeah. (laughs) And I always find it funny when people assume that about me or other um, artists at times, they're like, oh, you must've just loved it all the time. Oh, you're so good because you're, as soon as I say my dad was a musician or teacher, they're like, oh, that's why.
0: like, no, that's not why. (laughs)
2: Like, do you really think it's like a magic wand? Like I just came out of the womb, like, okay, here's some virtuoso, you know, it's like, It it doesn't work that way. It literally requires focus and time and discipline. Mm. And that does not come by accident that comes by parents that set up a household in which that's an expectation. Yeah. And I'm not saying that there aren't students or kids who find themselves, um, you know more independent eventually, which eventually I was, to go to their instrument and practice and sit there. I'm not saying that that never happens, but the idea that this is just a given because my father was a musician um, is, you know, something I'd like to expel right here on this podcast and anywhere else um, because it just simply is not true. Yeah. If you have kids of your own and you think that because your child doesn't run to the piano or whatever instrument they're playing when they get home from school, that means they don't like it or you know they don't want this, then you are vastly misunderstanding the concept you guys brought up earlier that just because we play a musical instrument we're all human beings and we have generally the same tendencies yeah yeah (laughs) which is that we do not want as kids to have to work for anything like (laughs) if it can just happen that would be nice like honestly i said as kids so that i felt better about myself i still don't want to have to work for it i mean if i could just get down and you know i'm tired right you know like so you know i think that this this is something i talk about because i say it it comes from that the teachers, the community, the parents that support the children, but also instill, you know, um, discipline and focus into their environment because um, that's how we all succeed. It's because we had that support for us to um, stay on task, right? So anyway, once I got to Cleveland Institute of Music, uh, just down the road, of course, um, I now for the first time was around. You know, 24-7, I'm around peers and I'm making friends with people who are all there for music. They all understand I have to practice for this many hours a day. You know, you can be hanging out and eating in the cafeteria and say, okay, I have to go practice for two hours and no one's batting than eye. So um, I think for me, that just sums up sort of that childhood and then that that transition that was extremely motivating.
1: yeah. Wow, I love that you bring that up because I think that's such a good point that like young people even like students in our youth symphony sometimes will be self-conscious about the self, the fact that they like don't enjoy practicing sometimes. <laughs> and 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 I always say, you know, it's you're not always going to enjoy this, but yes. it, like it because it's it is work. Of and course. I think understanding that that's work but we can still find joy in it is that beautiful thing that I think young people um sometimes have trouble understanding at the front and they get self-conscious about it. And they're like, you know, but I think that's such a a great thing to remind us of is that, okay, no, there's so much that goes into this. So yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. And I know I totally agree. And I think I appreciate how you put finding joy because that is exactly what my experience was. Sometimes I definitely fought back, you know, depending on the day or the teenage year I was in on you know sitting down and working at uh you know working on the instrument but the one thing my mom always mentioned was sometimes i might fight to get to the piano but she never had to fight to keep me on the piano mm. and that was interesting because once i actually started to play and started to work on pieces and you know getting through repertoire i enjoyed especially um i would just you know she might say come on sit there when i was little you know sit there for at least half an hour i'd often go over that because you know for me, I did enjoy
0: mm-hmm.
2: making music. I did enjoy, um, you know, creating this, um, you know, right in front of me. And so uh, I, I do like how you said that. It's it's important to see that there's value. Yes, it's work, but if this is something that you're passionate about and you enjoy, then you will feel that reward. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. A friend of mine uh, referred to this concept of activation energy if you can just get yourself to start yeah then you can keep going and I, I certainly found that with studying scores as a conductor is once i it's like oh god i have to learn this long piece and the, the score is this thick and it's going to take mm-hmm. forever but once I start, then it's like, okay, then I get into it and I stop thinking about how much time has gone by. So yeah, the activation energy yeah. of just, just getting going. I
1: always say like the hardest part about practicing bassoon for me is putting the bassoon together. Yeah. Because there's nine pieces and it takes so freaking long. And, but once I put the bassoon together, oh, we're fine. I just have to put the bassoon together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So.
0: Let's talk a bit about Florence Price, because Florence Price is a composer that I had never heard of before COVID-19, and I had the opportunity, when there were no concerts going on, I had the opportunity to deliberately discover music that I didn't already know, orchestral music that I didn't already know, and Florence Price was among the composers I discovered, and I loved her music so much that... I programmed the first symphony with our advanced youth orchestra last fall. And it was a tremendous success. And several of the kids told us later it was their favorite piece they ever played in youth symphony. So I would love to hear your story about how you came to know the music of Florence Price and why you are championing championing it in the way that you are.
2: Absolutely. And I think the story that you just told is definitely part of the why just because this is really such great music, right? And um, I love hearing this feedback from the young uh, musicians in the youth orchestra that are saying that they were so musically inspired by uh, her symphony, which is Great, you're talking about Symphony Number no. One. Number
0: right? One, yeah, in E minor. It's A good
2: one to start with. I mean, they're all so good, but oh my goodness, that was the one, of course, that won the huge uh, Wanamaker Music Competition um, Prize, and therefore was premiered by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra in 1932, yep. and uh, for good reason. I mean, it's such a fabulous piece. But um, yes, I like to start with that because the music is so powerful and so moving. It is soulful. It it's as if every time I play her music or hear it, I just feel like she's there. I mean, she speaks through her soul, her very soul. Her life experiences um, are are embedded in the pages of her music, and um, as much as every composer obviously has you know, their own stamp or connection to whatever they wrote, because of course, you know, they wrote it. So, but there's something about Florence Price's music, sometimes composers, and I'm looking at different pieces, and I can sort of see from a sort of intellectual standpoint or even theoretical standpoint, you know, what their style is and what their stamp is, right? So with Florence Price, I go beyond that layer, and I get the sense that she is burying her soul. Mm. So, you know, another composer I feel that way is Brahms. Right, there are just certain composers that, at least for me, I'll play certain pieces by them, and I feel like they're in the room with their like their diary is in front of me, like their deepest, darkest secrets and wants, and you know the pain and the beauty of their life and whatever is just right there in front of me. I'm I met I've met Brahms through his music, you know, and so there's something that's so for me personally. I I love when I feel that sort of very human connection. And that's what I feel about Florence Price's music. It's just, there's this absolute connection to her soul, to her heart Mm -hmm. and um, every piece you feel it. Mm -hmm. Um, But to tell you, yes, how I uh, came across her, uh, it wasn't too long before you did and I think many For me, it was 2016. And I was asked to play with um, an orchestra called the Dream Unfinished Symphony. And they were doing a very special concert, honoring black uh, female um, composers, um, artists. Uh, We had some speakers and another part of the focus was bringing awareness uh, to, at that time, women who had been unfortunate victims of police brutality where their stories were not really being shared in the public. And this was a very interesting, um, they even put up a slideshow. It was was really moving. Mm. And I actually remember being there and looking and seeing names of women I'd never heard of before because they just didn't make it to the media stories. So it was just really um, a powerful night that focused on, you know, these social issues, but also uh, brought us all together through music. And they were the ones that were aware of, you know, of course, Florence Price and this Florence Price piano concerto. I was just asked to be the pianist to play it. Mm-hmm. And so when I got brought into the fold and was able to look at this piano concerto at length, I could not believe how powerful, how beautiful, how amazing this quite short piece, I mean, let's face it, for a concerto in around 18 minutes or so, it for it to pack so much in i just was so impressed so that was the beginning it just continued to blossom from there um you know as you can imagine i couldn't you know i couldn't wait to learn more about her and i was reading about her story and um you know i'm sure many now know a lot of a lot about her story but generally just how she came from little rock mm-hmm. where she grew up in 1887 she's born there and she grows up during a time where her family is actually part of the upper class. Her father was a dentist, her mother was a music teacher, and they were, you know treated with respect and and her father was a huge um, he was a huge leader in the really in, in the movements to keep equality in the South. And it was just this absolutely inspiring family unit here. And she goes on to New England Conservatory. At 16, she comes back after a stint at Clark Atlanta University running the the music department, you know, again, success that she deserved. But she comes back in the 20s to Little Rock, Arkansas, and Little Rock has changed. It's drastically changed. And of course, this was happening gradually over time, but now she's back, and she is not allowed to join the Music Teachers Association in Little Rock because she's Black. And it was just one of many things. I actually recently came across a picture. I have to say, this was so moving for me. I was in Little Rock just a month ago to give a concert and played some of Florence Price's music. Someone that was there came and showed me this picture. And he said that his grandmother had grown up you know, in Little Rock and he had this picture of her as a pianist student, maybe 16 or so, in front of the Little Rock Conservatory, which is just a school that's what it used to be called, and it, you know, serviced the area and students. And in the picture, you see the students and some of the teachers, but you can't help but notice that they're all um, Caucasian. And then you see right in the corner, and apparently this was missed. Even he didn't notice this initially. And um, his grandfather had noticed, and they blew up the picture. In the very corner of the frame is Florence Price. And it was something else looking at this picture, because I just felt, and we know this, how like, you know, art and photos and photography, right? It can bring us back in time, right? You look at a photo and you just imagine the moment in time as if you were there. So that's what I did. And I just stared at this photo and I could imagine going back to this time where Florence Price clearly taught at that school. I'm sure she was, she obviously was a teacher there. It's the 20s, she's got her degree. But most likely considering the rules at the time, she either only taught students of color probably in a separate space or whatever it was she had to stay somewhat separated under the auspices of the school and so it was picture time and she was not allowed to be in the picture but she clearly was a teacher there Mm -hmm. so just seeing that and knowing that here she is standing off to the side I mean this was a woman who had probably, I mean, arguably at that time had a higher degree, higher pedigree training and everything than anyone sitting in that space at that point in time. But she was told, stay aside, you can't be in this picture. So at any rate, it moved me, it moved me. I mean, the story is amazing. So of course she goes to Chicago to get away from, you know, situations like this, she cannot grow. In little rock and that's where seemingly her life takes a huge turn by winning this competition and chicago symphony premieres her work i heard that gershwin was in the audience and so they clearly knew each other and you know so she's her name is on the map you know being in chicago and that decade was fruitful for her i mean she wrote pretty much all her four symphonies. She wrote uh, the the piano concerto that you'll hear in 1934. She wrote a piano sonata, which also I perform a lot and got many prizes, big, you know, a lot of her chamber works were performed in the thirties. So it was a fruitful year for her, but regardless of how much she wrote, what doesn't add up is how many premieres she got. She only really ever in her whole lifetime really got a huge premiere by a major orchestra with the Chicago Symphony. There was no other major orchestra of, of note that I could find that premiered her symphonies and her other works. And so, you know, it's a disconnect. And I think as I digested her story over these years, which continues to inspire me, but also, you know, I've been very hungry to taken more of her music i've just really you know delved into more of her piano solos her piano chamber music um, obviously listening into the symphonies and violin concertos and all these other things and i continue to be amazed at the level at the high level of her um, musicianship and all, you know and her composition skills and all i can find is you know her words which resonate in my mind to this day, which were please forgive the handicap of my race and gender and look past this, you know, essentially looking past this to the music. And it resonates with me because that was the theme in her lifetime. It was that either you're going to be blocked because of your race or it'll be your gender or it will be both, but you have to somehow get past both of these things not just being a woman composer, a black woman composer before we accept you. So who can fight both of those battles, you know? And so um, I'm proud, I'm so proud of her, I'm so amazed by her strength because again, many of us would have caved and said, I'm finding another career. Uh, But that was not, again, possible for her. It's clear to me in her writing that she had a lot to say in, in music, and she had to write it down, so she did. And I mean, her catalog is huge. There's so much music out there. There's still music that's lost that was never published, and I hope we find to this day. Mm-hmm. There was three piano concertos. We've only found one. Mm-hmm. So look in your attics, everyone, because they because <laughs> they found some of it in in, in, in the an attic. attic of her. Summer home, I say. Yeah, you know, that's where yeah, the, they found the piano concerto. And the fourth
0: symphony. <laughs> I heard the fourth symphony was found in the summer home attic as well. And the second symphony is still missing. So,
2: um, oh, I didn't know it was still
0: missing. Yeah, the first, third, and fourth we have, but the second.
2: Wow. We
0: have, we have record that it was written, but not. We don't have the music.
2: I am. I believe. I believe things yeah. will pop up. I really
0: do. So, yeah. so I want to ask Ver uh, just for you to tell a little bit of the story of what it was like to record the piece with New York Youth because I have a friend that performed in that recording session. And it sounded like the craziest, most unique, wild, but also meaningful COVID experience that I think anyone I know had. <laughs> so I'd love to hear from your perspective, what was this experience like?
2: I mean, it was everything you said, of course, <laughs> to start. but it, you know, and it was so funny because I think I, I knew what was happening, but I didn't know what was happening. To be clear, I didn't really understand the breadth of what was happening until I walked into the space that day for the recording. So in other words, I knew that we were recording and I think somehow um, things were lost in translation. For instance, I didn't know that we were recording just with the strings. I was going to record my part with the strings and that the winds and brass and percussion would be recording later and we'll get to that. Um, And then I also wasn't even fully aware of the, you know, the breadth of um, the whole production, and what you know what they were, you know, with Judith Sherman, the uh, amazing producer, um, who they had on board and helping with this, and you know, everything. I mean, I was just amazed at what they were able to put in place during that time, the end of 2020, um, to make this happen, and the passion behind the project. So I have to say, just walking in as a soloist, And taking that all in, I I just was, um, I mean, I was amazed. And I also was impressed, and I still am, by the students. I mean, these, it's a wonderful orchestra, the New York Youth um, Symphony. I'm actually playing with them this season um, in Carnegie with the Schumann Piano Concerto. These students really, really were just so excited and so, dedicated to making this recording the best they could be under the circumstances like i i was just i loved how much they took this seriously and again they were so grateful to do it i mean there's something about there's just something about kids or teenagers or you know anything in that age group mm-hmm. that kind of always brings us pause because they You know, as we grow, I think life gets to us in various ways, and there's so many different stressors, you know, as adults we have to deal with. And sometimes we forget, at least especially in the music world, when we actually have to worry about paying our bills with music and all these other things, that just the basic, you know, when we all go back to what we felt like as teenagers or younger, that basic just love of music and the passion for something just because it means something, you know what I mean? Just like understanding that I think was beautiful. But um, right, so we do the recording with just the strings and, and that was fine. And then I couldn't believe it when they told me, well, they're going to play the, re- you know, in their earphones, they're all gonna have earphones, and they're gonna be listening to you on the piano and maybe the strings as well. I think it was just that recording and they're gonna play along with that. And I was, how in the world is this going to sound going how are we going to put this together and that's again when you have a producer like judah sherman and you have a team like they had and everything else that's how you do what they did i couldn't even i couldn't imagine how they could put this together but with you know again talented students and a great team they did and uh When it all came, it was pieces. Right. So when they finally sent me the final product of the parts put together, I mean, it really was almost flawless in terms of, you know, um, lining everything up. It really was. I mean, yeah, it's, it's an experience (laughs) I'll never forget. (laughs) (laughs) That's really wonderful. Yeah. I,
0: I heard the story from uh, my friend is a percussionist, so he would have been part of the other session that you were not at, but he said it was just a wild, wild experience. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, so y- you are such this champion for Florence Price and uh, rightfully so. She's f- phenomenal and I think Beyond this, though, that you, you've done lots of things. There's lots of buckets of your work that are just so unique to dive into. So I want to say, in, in 2019, you served as the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra's MAC Music Innovator for your role as an mm-hmm. African-American classical musician who embodies artistry, innovation, and a commitment to education and community engagement, which is a lot of words all put together. But I was wondering if you could talk about this role, because I've, I've always admired the Cincinnati Symphony and the efforts that they have put forward and they have some amazing programs. So I wanted to know what was this role actually like and what did you do in, in this space?
2: So this, this was a unique, um, and I think, especially at that time, it was still very, fairly new. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they had one person perform here too. Um, so I think it probably has expanded a lot more since then, but, um, at the time it was, it was interesting when we were having discussions about it, essentially they wanted to cater the fellowship and the you know the, the residency, as one would have it, to both fit the artist that you know um, was the recipient that year, but also what was needed at that time in Cincinnati, you know, around the community. Because essentially, it's immersing the artist into the community in a variety of ways and having them interact, um, you know. With, I think on some level I was going through many, many different age groups and many different types of places. And then it culminates in um, a concert and collaboration as well with the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra members. So for me, I was out there for a week and I was um, well, I was out there for one week for the residency and then another week for performances. But the uh, first residency week. Wow, I think I was um trying to remember everywhere I went. I was at a children's hospital and I played and I catered an interactive program that got um, you know, sent up into the rooms of um especially um kids who were uh you know, terminal well, you know, cancer patients and things like that. I mean, it was actually broad spectrum, but um there were some kids who were able to come and watch me and some only watch from the room. But I was able to do a special program at the hospital. I was at a community music school that really had a wide range of adults and younger students that studied from you know various backgrounds. And they I did a master class. Some of them played for me and we got to talk about their pieces and then I played at the end. And that was so much fun. I also went to a couple different schools and, you know, basically presented in an assembly for, you know, I don't even know, two, 300 kids. And so it was actually very interesting because I was in a lot of different spaces. Therefore, I had to shift, you know, how I catered the offering to that group. I'm a huge believer in you have to know and study your audience. You have to know, you know, what what is going to be the best way to reach them where they are. You know, how can you fe- help them feel like they've made this connection with you? I think it's tricky when classical musicians just have that sort of one track mind. Well, right now I'm performing the, you know, entire set of Beethoven sonatas or, you know, whatever, like, um, and that's what I'm doing. So they're like, oh yeah, we need you to go around into schools or whatever. Okay, cool. And then they sit there and play like Opus 109 or <laughs> 111, which is, you know, one of the later Beethoven sonatas, 30 <laughs> minute pieces, you know, and then just say, um, well, here you go, because this is what I do. Right. So then it's, to me, that's more about you and it's not about those kids. Because I wanna leave the kids curious. I wanna leave from that space, having them learn something, having them want to know more about um, a composer. And so therefore I want to interact. I wanna keep um, keep their attention. You know, So it was fun. I think not only just getting into different spaces in Cincinnati, but also to be creative in my own practice for it to say what will reach this group you know what will work well in this place
0: i think this is very cool i am a cincinnati native by the way i grew up in cincinnati Uh, i attended the school for creative and performing arts and walnut hills high school i don't know if you were at either of those for an assembly but uh Yeah.
2: No, I wasn't. Yeah, that would have been cool.
0: (laughs) But fond, fond memories. And I I love that you got to spend that time in my hometown. Yeah. Yes. Now, (laughs) this year, you received a great honor from the Sphinx organization, which we have talked extensively. (laughs) extensively yes. <laughs> about here on the podcast you received the 2022 sphinx medal of excellence can you share a little bit about what this honor means to me as well as your relationship with the sphinx organization
2: absolutely um it's you know i'm so humbled by that uh award and and by being a recipient this year especially alongside the two people who I have so many respect, so much respect for Karen Slack and Randall Goosby. The award itself, um, which you know is given to I think young and uh, you know either up and coming or established um artists that have, you know, I, I don't know the exact I can't remember the exact words of uh, uh the exact wording of why uh we get the award, but you know, the, the basis of the nominations, because again, we didn't know we were being nominated mm-hmm. and it's sort of all done um anonymously, but the basis of that is to see, you know, artists that have um not only found success in their careers, whatever that is, but I think it's also for how we use our careers right and um i think randall and karen as well show that very multifaceted um career and it's and it's more it's it's beyond just their ability but it's who they are who they are as artists and i and i try to again that really matters to me as an artist as well so um you know that alone just meant so much but the sphinx organization Um, you know, this award is one thing that they offer. I think um, I'm also really proud to be connected to them because they have done so much in the music world to try and expand access to those who struggle to get, um, you know, and resources too, to be able to get, um, you know, lessons and to get, you know, opportunities to perform and connect. And so they have of course their conference and they have, you know, the various, uh, they have their competition. They also have uh, scholarship programs for young students. And so there's just so much that they've expanded to um, help change the landscape. And it's just something that I am just so proud to be a part of. I see the issues that are there and I do the best I can as an individual. in philadelphia where i live but um they're just they're having such such a great reach and um i just appreciate being uh connected to them
1: yeah i i i think that we've talked about sphinx so much on this on this podcast but the amount of education that they do and the amount of uh that they take on kind of for the the classical music world at large to educate a lot of organizations who uh don't have the um, institutional knowledge or have chosen not to have the institutional knowledge about what some of these issues are and how there are very easy pathways to just expand what you do and open up opportunities to um uh, young musicians and musicians of color and i think that i i just respect so much of what they do and it's so cool that you got that honor and and this i just i it's so exciting and um we're coming Kind of towards the end of our conversation here, so I'm going to kind of pack a couple things into one thought here, and you can take what you want from it and kind of respond. But you're an educator in a lot of ways now. You you teach at Curtis, um, um, but you also, you know, you're this champion of Florence Price, and so and and as being a black woman classical music uh, performer, I I assume. I mean, we're here talking to you on a podcast right now that you often get asked really hard questions about diversity, equity, inclusion, and what is the classical music world doing and how can we do it better? And so I I wonder if you could share with us a little bit about what your perception over the past few years has been since 2020, since the murder of George Floyd, um, about the pathways that we have taken to try to rectify um or some organizations are tanking to try to rectify history and decades of hurt. But how can we, you know, moving forward, make sure we're doing this in a way that is not tokenizing in a way that we are lifting up voices and, and just allowing voices to come to the table instead of forcing voices to come to the table. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I was in a, a good conversation the other day and they said, if you're in a meeting and there's a black person at the meeting and they're not talking, they're not volunteering any information. There's probably something wrong. You've probably not mm. created an environment that is welcoming. And that was such an interesting insight. And I know there was a lot of thoughts I just kind of threw out there, but um, uh, yeah. How do you, how have you been? Yeah. It's how do you feel yeah. over the past few years about this whole topic that, I mean, we mm. talk about it on the podcasts, right? So this is kind of what we've sure. been doing, but I'm, I'm yeah. interested to see what you think.
2: No, I'm um, yeah, no, that's uh. it's, Thank you. And there is a lot in there, absolutely. So yes, I can um, you know, kind of just give you, at least from my perspective. Um, and I I appreciate what you said about um not forcing, you know, people to the table, but inviting them. Um, I think that is the tricky line, right? Is um there the the lens, you know, was focused in on uh, organizations in America. Mm-hmm after george floyd i think you know because everybody started looking very closely at their own lives and their places of work and their organizations they support or what have you and started to wonder because i think it was there was that certain side which tends to precipitate change right is guilt you know there's some sense of well hmm, maybe we're not doing everything we could be doing right so you know we feel badly about this so then hey let's do something right mm-hmm. so Again, you know, some people say, well, why did it have to take that? Well, I mean, sure, in a perfect world, that would be the case, and we would just do things because they're the right thing to do, and everybody would jump on board, and that would happen, but history has proven that that's not necessarily the way big changes happen. They often, unfortunately, have to be precipitated by problems, by events, where we have to then re-examine you know our our institutions are now and ourselves. So that's where we were at, right? And I am happy that um, out of tragedy, you know, there was uh, moves to do better. Um, but then the tricky part, no matter what, is then how do we do that? As you said, because I did definitely feel that there was, you know, there sort of hard to avoid that, right? There's a certain amount of tokenism that you'll see in these moments. You'll also see uh, people trying to, you know, I mean, you can kind of tell the difference, I think. There's that, okay, yes, we need to change it. And then there's the, hey, everybody's expecting us to change things. So let's just do something now without even thinking about, you know, what to do. So for instance, it was very interesting to see how you'll see organizations that actually, you know, thought, how about we bring some black voices or, you know, people of color, whatever, to the table in our board or wherever and and talk about these things, talk about what can we do over time that could, you know, create lasting change in our organization. You could tell the difference with organizations that did that. And then the organizations that were like quickly trying to prove a point and they they blasted on social media and all their marketing, like, ooh, look what we're doing. And you could always tell because you'll see stuff like, okay, fine, they program, Um, a piece by a Black composer or whatever, and then the rest of the program doesn't even have any kind of connection to that piece, which you could have actually found connections or thought through things, but you were just quickly trying to prove something. So you're like, okay, here we have a Black piece and look what we did. And, um, you know, the other thing is like, again, extension of that being, (laughs) and I'm happy to see this changing, right? So obviously I have um, totally... Um, heralded Florence Price for all the reasons I gave. But another thing I found interesting was, you know, I performed it with Philly Orchestra in the beginning of 21. A lot of people were able to see that and, you know, how I did it. And um, gratefully, though, you know, there was, um, uh, there were those, you know, orchestras are or such that, you know, were impressed by what I did and then wanted to book me to do it. So great, you know, now I can share this piece, you know, more uh, more nationally or hopefully internationally as well. Um, But then it also was interesting in topics and discussions with my agents and the different things where it was like, okay, well, at the same time, I don't want them to be that consolation prize, like, oh, good, let's bring Michelle to play Florence Price. And that's all, you know, and it's actually really interesting because I as a perfect, wonderful example with Canton, you know, symphony, I am of course doing the footage, but I'm also doing Strauss Burlesque, which is, you know, completely different. It, well, in certain ways, not so different in terms of sort of untraditional, mm. uh, you know, as I said, uh, set up of a concerto. But um, at the same time, I do appreciate that, that line where it's at the, yes, I am a Black woman, pianist, that is true. And I absolutely identify and I'm proud of that. But I'm also a classical pianist, just a classical pianist who went to the conservatories and studied all of these composers, just like everyone else. And so that's the part where I say, making lasting change, right? Because ultimately, there's no way around the fact when you when you look at something and you say, Hey, we haven't been doing well, there is like, we don't have diverse programs, we don't have diversity in our you know our board or our you know our, our leadership teams or whatever and you look at it and you say let's change it. Well I agree with that. I think if you can make you know immediate changes that make sense in certain ways you do that. But it cannot stop there. Yeah. You have to then take those moves and then look ahead and go farther. And so those kind of things for me as a pianist is that Okay. Absolutely. That's great. Thank you for promoting Florence Price. I'm happy to be part of that. But again, I can't be your, um, you know, your token to your audience to say, look what we're doing. Um, it has to be about the music. And it, and it also just has to be about just me as an artist in yeah. general. So this isn't all I do, but this is a story I do love to tell. Yeah. Right. And so you can have both. You actually can. Yeah. I tell people that all the time. It's like, You know it doesn't have to be and i think that again one of the best ways to approach this properly right and i know that's happening with the orchestra here um or in canton but one of the best ways to approach that is to make sure that you are bringing diverse voices to the table and you were talking about how if you you know one person is black isn't talking there's a problem yes that too you know that's the other side if you're going to bring voices to the table then listen to those voices Then you know, and 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 everybody can share and grow together. That's how you get lasting and change and have it not be, hey, let's make a point today, and then be done with it.
1: Yeah, that's and, a beautiful answer. Thank you. And a, Thank a you. A
0: beautiful <laughs> thing. I know we need to wrap up with our final question very very momentarily. But a beautiful thing we saw this past year: um, we do have a more diverse board. Yeah. And at the general body meeting where all the staff and the board (laughs) meet together, uh, I was very thrilled to see that the black voices in the room were not afraid to speak up and contradict some of the (laughs) older voices that had been on the board for a while. And I was like, I was so happy to see that. It really, really made me so thrilled for our organization and for the work we've done uh, over the past several years, as we try to move forward into our next chapter, it really was, it cool. was wonderful.
2: Yeah. No, that's, that's huge. Actually. Yeah. yeah was, that's huge. And I think cool. a lot, you know, a lot of people don't understand that, that, you know, making that safe space that says, yes, we are trying to expand. You know, it was so funny because, and I'll, and I'll say this point, I literally, cause I really believe this. It's very interesting because I believe on diversity really on all levels i think it makes such a difference i also think it makes a difference like okay let's say there's an organization that you know might be servicing the black community or whatever and the entire leadership team and the entire board is black i don't even think that should be the case you know you know some people might not agree with me but i'll tell you why because i feel that again if you're trying if the goal you know what i'm saying if the goal is to create communities and environments where everybody feels like we can, you know, live and work together and be, you know, again, treated equally, then we have to all come to the table. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. it's like, you know. again, I'm not trying to say that, oh, well, you know, that's bad because the entire board or whatever is is black. I'm saying that it's actually better if you have diversity, no matter what the organization is of voices, because this is going to elevate, no matter what's gonna elevate your program, your organization, whatever it may be in the communities that you're in, because that's exactly what we're trying to get away from, which is creating the division in a country that does not need to be divided. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
0: so i know we have to let you go um but i will ask you one final question and that is the question that we ask to all of our podcast guests at the end of every episode in a nutshell from your perspective how do we orchestrate change
2: oh wow what a question i wonder what and you end with it too right oh my (laughs)
0: goodness.
2: well okay i mean i think we kind of touched on you know, my thoughts on, you know, how to orchestrate change, I, if I would add anything else to that, um, which I don't feel, you know, I sort of said it, but yeah, I guess to summarize, um, I feel that it's just, yeah, I've got to go back to that same statement, I think that it's just bringing, um, bringing a variety of voices, bringing diverse voices together, who are, who care about you know, the program that they're part of or the orchestra or whatever, you know, your organization is that are passionate about, you know, what they're doing and bringing them together, working together to build build your organization up. And if you, and this must start from the top. And so for me, I think orchestrating real change, lasting change means that, you know, organizations need to look at their leadership, and constantly reevaluate, um, you know, who's at the top. Are do they care? Do they care about this change? Like really, do they want the change? Do they care about the change? Because if they don't care and if they don't want it, then ultimately it will never last. Mm-hmm. And so um, I would say, yeah, for me that's a big thing. And then the other side is to go all the way to the bottom because I feel this way about, um, you know, uh, from students back to that whole idea of like a magic wand and you're good at your instrument, right? Doesn't work that way. Going back to the beginning of our podcast when I was a little girl and my parents were giving me that support structure. So that's my other answer to that question. To orchestrate lasting change, it has to start from the bottom as well. From the very top and the very bottom. We need to invest in our kids. We need to truly invest in giving them support. Um, Support the parents. The parents are huge. Yep. Help the parents, you know, figure out the best ways to support their kids because they love their kids. Help them support their kids in practice, in, um, um, in in focus and keeping them, the kids that are passionate about what they're doing at the instruments, keeping them there and giving them that support so that when it's time to go off to conservatory like I did and many others, they're ready for it.
1: Yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you for joining us today. It's been just an absolute pleasure. And you're going to be here in Canton. And I'm so excited for that and for people to hear your music. And um, yeah, we're just so grateful. Thank you
2: for being here. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.
0: <laughs> Michelle Can, nationally renowned pianist faculty member at Curtis, who will be performing with the Canton Symphony on October 30th.
1: Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra.
0: Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams.
1: Our audio engineer and mixer is Nathan Maslick with video and audio editing by Shoreline Media.
0: Thank you for listening and see you next time.